Hey, Sales Enabled Podcast listeners. This is Alistair Wilcock, co-host of the RevOps Podcast. We have another special episode for you coming right up. So if you like what you hear, come and subscribe and join us at the RevOps Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This week's RevOps Podcast. I'm Alistair Wilcock, Chief Strategy Revenue Officer here at Revenue.io. I'm very excited to have a guest with me today, Jeff Bajor. Jeff is a seven and a half year CTP. He coach, he trains, he consults, and is also a market leading author with the book, Rethink the Way You Sell. And Jeff, uh, delighted to have you with us. I know you speak around the world. You speak on many different podcasts, all those things. It's just great to have somebody that, that relishes the trade craft of sales with us here today. So welcome, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm glad we could get together and talk about this. We had a couple of prep conversations. We were introduced a couple of months ago, and I've always enjoyed um, our time together. Um, and it's funny you mentioned that about the the trade and the craft of selling. I posted recently on LinkedIn. I said, you know, I've been doing this almost two decades. I still get chills when, you know, good things happen in meetings. I still get that pit in my stomach when I wonder if the deal is going to come through. Like there, there's never a dull moment in sales. And when you can embrace those ups and downs, the inevitable things that you cannot control, it's just so much richer of an experience. And it just, it never gets old. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with you. And, uh, I reflect back on some of our conversations, some things I've seen you do in the market as well. And one of the guiding principles I know that you have that I really find fascinating, and you say to people that belief is a superpower. <laughs> now, there's many places we can go with that. <laughs> right. But in the context of sales, what exactly is the superpower of belief? What, what What's going on there? Where Where are you coming from on that? Well, I think, you know, if you don't believe you can, and, and I'm from Detroit, Henry Ford's kind of big around here, and he's known as saying that if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. doesn't matter, right? The, the, where your mindset starts you is inevitably where you're going to end up going. But um, it's one of those things that's not really talked enough about. It's really taken for granted that, well, yeah, of course I have confidence and of course I, I believe that this is worth selling. And so I'm going to take it, you know, to market and I'm going to put myself in front of people that I don't know and ask them for money. Essentially, that's what we do from a professional sales point of view. But in order to really do your best work, you have to have full alignment between what you do, who you're doing it for, how you do it and why. And what I've been really interested in, particularly over the last couple of years in my consulting practice, is all the training in the world is only going to take an organization so far. Right. We know over the last 50 years or so, we've done a really good job professionally of distilling selling down to a science. We know what needs to happen. And there are so many ways to make those things happen. And you know, if you want to bring someone in or you want to talk to someone or even go find your own information about how to better and more effectively get through your sales process, there's not a whole lot that's new, but more reps are missing their targets than hitting them still. So I start to wonder, is it a training issue? Is it a skills issue or is it something else? And it almost always comes back to the level of belief that a sales rep or a sales manager or whoever has in the way that they're doing things. 
Right. You can give me some playbook and you can say that it worked for you and I can put it into play exactly the way you did it and it won't work for me the same way it works for you. And then I'll start to doubt it, which is the opposite of belief. And then I'll find another playbook from another tried and true top performer and I'll do exactly what they did and I will get mediocre results. And then I'll start to wonder, well, maybe I'm the problem. And the answer is, yes, you are the problem, but not because you're incapable, because you don't believe enough in yourself to trust your own intuition of the right way to do these things. You're too busy looking for someone else's scheme and not just sitting down, think about what needs to be done, think about the intuitive way that you would go about accomplishing those steps. And when you believe enough in yourself to trust your own intuition, that's when your best work becomes possible. And so that's why I say belief is your superpower. Look, mediocre results still might be a little bit better than what you're getting right now. You may call that a success. That's fine. Um, but I don't believe that you can do your very best work unless you have that full alignment, unless you have been given a space where you can be creative, where you can have fun, where you can feel free to fail enough to learn, you know, and until you are really encouraged to bring your whole self and your whole authentic intuition to your sales methodology, I don't believe you're doing your best work until you can do that. And and that is really where I help people. It's I say it all the time, like you didn't come here to be mediocre. Yeah. You came here to learn how to blow the lid off your own potential and do great things. It's not a new closing technique that you need. Yeah, I think it's it's the art and the self-belief to go with the science. Yeah. Jeff, I think you hit on a really important point at the onset there. That look, we are living in an age where two-third of reps are missing quota, right? You have about 30% that is zero to 30, you have another 30% that are 30 to 70, and you got you know the rest in the the plus 70 thing. So uh -huh. two-thirds are missing it. You see buyers saying, by the way, when I actually talk with a rep, 83% of the time I find the conversation worthless. Yeah. So, which is tragic. And yet we continue to push so much more on sellers, more tools, more technology. We push more insight on them and we're actually getting the, the inverse of results. <laughs> They're not getting better. It's getting harder to sell. And the selling that we're getting is getting more and more average. And so I think it is it's the humanity. It's the personalization that needs to come back to it. And, it, and you're right, the self-belief is so key to that, right? And we've spoken of before, Jeff, you think of not just the conviction, but it's fascinating how many people have an aversion to sales, <laughs> right? Seller, and, and I mean the salespeople themselves. And here's the kind of the easy example of that. When you're, you're at a dinner party or being introduced or things like that, how often have you met a professional seller? You ask them what they do, and they give you every answer except I'm a salesperson. Yeah. And and I and I take great irony in that because <laughs> when you actually understand what salespeople do extraordinarily well, the facts are remarkable. It's one of the highest paying professions worldwide. 65% of all CEOs of publicly traded companies have come from a sales background at some point in their career. And and if people are prepared to, you know, career development is high for that role. And people are pay, prepared to pay a lot for it. They're amongst the highest paid. And you're exposed to all of these people around the world through the travels of communication and engaging with buyers. Wouldn't you want to celebrate that? Yeah. Like you're clearly, like 
to, to, to be human is to storytell. It's to espouse things and, and share greatness of how to accomplish different things. And yet, going back to my example, how many sellers have an aversion to even being called a salesperson? Why? Somewhere along the way, we were taught that um, there are some bad actors out there that want to separate us from our money. And I think, you know, when you go back a hundred years, selling was a noble profession. It was about helping other people. It was about doing good in your community. It was about solving problems. It was about providing solutions. And then at the latter half of the 20th century, we started, for, I, I really believe this was because corporate profits were starting to be scrutinized a little bit more often and forecasting needed to be accurate. So it's really, you just, you, you take a scientific approach to selling, like so many groups did. And I think about all the research that Neil Rackham and, and that group that did all of the spin selling research, like that's, that was really groundbreaking research at that time. And really, really important because selling is such an individual thing. Someone needed to take a look at this wide swath of data and say, okay, what really works? And that's important because that's how we get better. Yeah. But then when you recognize that everything became as predictable as possible, when you want predictability, listen, predictability and mediocrity go hand in hand. It, if everybody did it the same way and got completely repeatable results, all those results would be, by definition, mediocre. Right. And I think when you try to just narrow everything down, it, it goes from this step to this step to this step, and this is how we get at this company, from this step to this step. Well, now you're essentially making people act as robots. It takes all the fun out of it. It takes all the creativity out of it. It takes all the right-brained activity out of it. And that's just not as inspiring as it could be. And if people aren't inspired, they don't do their best work. And so you end up leaving potential on the table at the expense of predictability. Now, I am in no way, shape, or form against any company making money. But we really have to think about the balance of other aspects here. Do we want engaged employees who do really, really great work, except occasionally maybe they miss? Or do we want a bunch of drones that will just deliver the same earnings per share, you know, every quarter? Ask different people, you're going to get different answers, right? I don't think there's a wrong answer there. But, but my point is, and this is a roundabout way of answering your question, over the last 30 or 40 years, since repeatability became the priority, salespeople started acting against their own natural instincts, against their own authentic instincts, and it became about producing that money instead of helping the person because the corporation was bigger than the salesperson. And now what you're seeing with social media, what you're seeing with everybody's ability to connect with one another, share information, and really, I think, take a stand against people who aren't acting in their own customer's best interest, that stuff's not tolerated anymore. And so you can't yeah. get away with it. And now people yeah. like you and I we want customers for life. You know, it's funny. I've, I've always, you know, the, the, the stereotype of the used car lot guy with the mustard stain on his tie and the jacket that's never been, you know, dry cleaned. Like, you know, in that guy's defense, you're not walking on that lot ever again. You might as well drive off it. He's going to do whatever he can to put you into this fine used automobile today. That's his job. But see, you and I, we want customers for life. So we have to be held accountable, not only to the results that we provide, but the way that we provide them. That means we're going to act differently. And I think yeah. that kind of accountability is really good for our profession. So we're still in that transition. So a lot of people, like my mom, 
she's coming around now. She she finally gave me some grief because I've said this on a couple of podcasts. I said, my mom doesn't know how to reconcile the fact that one of her favorite people is also in sales, right? And and now I train salespeople and consult with sales teams for a living. And she's just, she's like, but wait a second, you're such a good person. I'm like, yeah, I know. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I see it in the companies I work with. Younger people now are much more comfortable calling themselves salespeople than, say, people our age, Alistair, or even a few years older than us. So I see the tide changing. But somewhere along the line, there were some bad actors that gave the entire profession a bad reputation. And it's, in some ways, made for an interesting challenge for people like you and me. Um, But you're right. When you look at all the opportunity it affords you, when you redefine what selling really is in a way that suits you, and the way I think about it is you asked me to be on this podcast, that's a sales call. I said yes, uh, so you made a sale. I'm now your customer, right? Anytime you ask someone for something, that's a sales call. And if you, if you think about how many people you ask for things of you know, throughout the day, do you think about those people as your best customers or potentially your best customers? Like Now all of a sudden, Selling means the way you interact with other human beings around you everywhere you go. That's a different outlook than where can I get my next $2,500 sale from? It really is. I have to think like in my career now, and sales professional, I've been fortunate to work with around the world, right? I mean, it's like Gartner, jet setting everywhere, helping different teams and stuff like that. One of the key traits I always saw amongst the best, I'm not sure they really actually even thought of their customers as customers. That might sound a little odd to people listening in, uh-huh. but I actually think spot on that we're in this age of a resurgence of of relationship, right? And if I have a relationship with somebody, I'm much more wanting to help a friend, help solve a problem together than I am simply to sell them something, right? Uh-huh. And I think that's you know what we're seeing is that generational move back, ironically, to relationship selling now. I'm not here suggesting for a second that I think that we're going to see, you know, golf games and fancy dinners and, you know, we're going back to like a 1980s selling style. No, I don't for a second that. Right. The new new way of virtual selling, engaging as you and I are doing right now and figuring out how to connect when, you know, 83% of all engagement is happening virtually. Yeah. You better believe this is, this is the way the world now is. Uh-huh. But, you know, understanding and actually applying empathy to somebody is key. The part two to that I would suggest is, I know you you said this earlier, but I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of issue with this. Okay, let's do it. Let's let's rumble. Yeah, there's drone <laughs> drone based companies. I got a bunch of just repeating things. Then you got the uh-huh. inverse off that and 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 you didn't know well, which is good or bad. I'm going to say, well, I do think what's bad. I I think it's actually very bad for companies' long term survivability to have that procession and treadmill or drone using your language type sales environment. If if we're moving to a world where engagement counts and relationship and connectivity of of at an empathy level actually counts. So the behavior and how and which I engage means something. I, I don't want that repetition. And to credit uh I believe it's Tiffany Boba, former gardener now a Salesforce evangelist over there. She'll even point to the fact that I think it's around 64% of a seller's time is spent not selling. I think it's more than that. I, and I don't know about you, I've never hired a sales rep and in the interview process, I said, okay, so for up this interview, I also want to talk through everything but selling. 
Right. Are you really good with Salesforce object fields? Uh, and, and tell me about you know how awesome you are at extracting ICP information from certain marketing stacks and how you're going to use all of that. Like, I you're not paying a sales rep to do that. <laughs> I'm paying a, a sales rep for the renaissance that you're suggesting that we're having, which is actually to have a behavior, an art to go with the science of selling that improves the communication <laughs> and that connectivity. If that isn't rooted in solving a problem, then how am I ever going to have the self-worth to say, hey, I help awesome people I know around the world solve problems all day long. Yes, I do that by selling them something, but it's because I love what it does. Right. I don't want to, sh- I want to help them solve that same problem in some way, shape, or form. And isn't that, like I know it seems easy to say, in large enterprises, I'm not for a second suggesting that's that's uh, some simple magical thing. We just put an HR for recruiting and it works. Right. But it is the, it is using technologies that automate all of the workflow and all of that 64% as much as we can and actually get our sellers back to what they're actually hired for, their superpower, which is their belief around what it is that they're changing for what they represent. That's That's where the magic of sales happens, isn't it? Hundred percent, and I'm I'm a little upset because I actually I don't disagree with you at all. Um, I thought we were going to have a a real d- heated discussion here, Alistair. Um, no, the I I agree with you. I think there needs to be that level of engagement. What I was saying, and what I'll say, or I guess repeat now, is that I think there are still some people at the head of companies who want predictability over anything else, and I think they're missing the point, and I think they will be weeded out of the the marketplace of the, of the landscape um, over the next. 10 to 20 years because you just can't think that way anymore. The customer is too empowered. The customer needs to be engaged at every possible opportunity. And the buying experience is much more important than the end result that the product gives you in a lot of cases. So that's something that needs to be minded. But the way you broke that down and said, look, here we've got the science. Well, there also needs to be the art. Yeah. And I, I believe that the science of selling is very simple. It's four steps. You identify who you can help. You get their attention. You communicate your value. You ask for next steps. That's it. Now, underneath, how do we accomplish those four steps? Well, the methods that you and I each employ on our own, that's the art part, right? Yeah. But when you try to make selling all science, that's when we have AI and robots doing our work for us, Yeah. right? And I don't think people want that. They want it for transactional stuff and, and all that. Okay, great. There's a role for them. But um, most people when they engage with a brand, particularly about a purchase that they're only going to make once every five or six years, I don't want to select it myself. I don't know what I'm doing. Yes, I have all of this information. I don't know what to do with it, Alistair. Can you help me identify what is going to be most important for me? And especially when you're spending big dollars, you want to make sure that you have the right choice. You know, most B2B buyers right now, their biggest condition for buying It doesn't have anything to do with your features, benefits, or even the problem that they're solving. Their biggest question is, will I get fired if this goes wrong? Because if I'm going to get fired, if this goes wrong, I'm going to try as hard as possible not to make this decision. (laughs) That is why so many deals get lost to status quo. 100%. I think, so that's a really interesting thread if we pull on that, because one of the key things, I remember Brent Adamson and uh, several others, Nick Tolan, who was one of the original uh, writers of Challenger. Uh Uh, and then when Isaac Gardner fledgling did some work in it as well, this concept of 
helping buyers buy, not just sellers sell. Right. Now, what you just said there, you know, your buyers are inundated. Buyers often don't want to get fired for this big multi-million dollar purchase off that. So, look, you got to think of it, reverse engineer the, the, the selling mindset there. Is it all about convincing the buyer, hey, I'm the least risky solution? Like if I'm selling you, Jeff, you're my buyer and you're going to go buy this multi-million dollar thing. Is, is that the most important thing? Or is it actually understanding you in your organization probably have the risk is, is you're making all kinds of commitments to a bunch of other people around what this could or couldn't do in the company. That's why we're going to go spend millions of dollars on this. Right. And in that, I have to help you move through that journey internally. <laughs> How am I supporting you with the evidence, the fact base, the information you need to help buy internally? Right, helping the buyer buy is actually a great way to earn trust, and that trust between then the seller and the buyer—that's that's where we create empathy. That's where we create joint understanding of the problem, and now we're on the journey together to reduce that risk, <laughs> as opposed to, well, I hope I just had the best financial model, and and I'm the least riskiest of vendors, and you choose me, right. The risk is definitely there. Is it? Is it always the top? Um, I, I think it's usually it's. If it's not the top, it's usually in the top two, maybe three. And it, it, I think yeah. it's significant to talk about because um, most B two B sellers are just thinking about their product, their competition, and the the problems that they're trying to solve with it. And there are other more global factors um, involved. But what you talk about as far as helping your buyers navigate the system. You don't always have access to the ultimate decision maker. You present to someone who has been delegated the responsibility of speaking with you, and then they take it back to their team, and they don't know the product as well as, or the solution as well as you do. They can't possibly be tasked to sell this cold, right out of the box. I mean, heck, the first 10 or 15 times you made a sales call working for this company, you fell all over yourself and didn't get it right, right? So now you're trusting someone else. The the professional sellers out there who do really well, they anticipate the objections that that champion inside the, the organization is going to have. They anticipate the conversations. They anticipate the environment that they're going to be in. And they say, okay, here's what needs to happen. If, if we're on the same page here and you think this is the thing, that can help, right? You're getting that commitment first. Now it's like, all right, when you go back to your organization, here are some things that you're going to run up against. I've got you. I'm here to support you. Anything you need, that's fine. I know I can't have the conversations, but once you've made that initial sale of, yes, we believe that this is the right solution, we just need to go back and get consensus. There's definitely an art to that and helping to you you have to be trusted enough that second and third level advice is actually going to be taken and and appreciated. There's so many things, and I know we're coming up, you know, up against the the clock here, and there's so many ways that we can dig into this, Alistair. But there is Jeff, and I think you know, I I would I would just remind our audience as they're thinking of how they coach and how they enable and how they think of how to operationalize this. Right? Yes, understand buyer journeys. Yes, understand where we can automate to take tasks off to allow people to have the art side of this buttoned up, and. As you're thinking of that buyer, remember in this example, that buyer that's making this big multi-million dollar purchase has a bunch of risk. They don't buy every day. Sellers do sell every day. That is the value that seller brings. The seller actually has a lot of experience on how these things go down. They have the data, they have the evidence, they have the understanding of the risks and the hurdles that are going to come on. 
and and not just of closing the deal, what happens after the deal. And if a seller projects and understands what happens after the deal and helps that life cycle and that person understand that, that's what they need the assistance on. Now, before we run out of time though, Jeff, I, I, I want to end on one that just I think is one of the most marvelous points you have in your book, Rethink the Way You Sell. And that is, you ask a really great question. Who makes the most money in sales? Is it the seller or the buyer? Oh, it should be the buyer. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. But explain why. Explain why. Because I <laughs> love how you explain this. Is This is just, if everybody could get this mindset shift of the buyer makes more money than the seller, that's, I think, a light bulb moment for most, most people out there. This is kind of a concession, actually, um, because I really I believe that most people don't have problems with salespeople. They have problems with money. And salespeople are notorious for separating people from their money. And so by extension, people have problems with salespeople. Yep. Um, but if I'm going to concede that, okay, fine, let's say you don't really have an issue with my, this isn't about, you know, that, that you don't want to come to terms with the fact that you help people. You, you don't want to come to terms with the fact that all the convincing in the world, which is a word I'm trying to eliminate from my, my vocabulary, that all the convincing in the world, you know, evidence that suggests that selling is a very noble helping profession. Let's talk about money. If your customer isn't profiting from the deal that you're doing with them, why not? <laughs> like, you know, this you're going to sell a solution for $2.5 million because they're going to turn around and make $55 million every year that they're using it. You know, and that's that's what I tell people all the time. They say, wow, Jeff, you're, you're expensive. I'm like, yeah, I know I'm expensive. That's my insurance policy that you're going to get the results you're looking for. And by the way, I leave. You're going to install me for a relatively short period of time to transform the results you're getting out of your sales team. And then when I go away and you stop paying me, you still continue printing money. It's really good deal for you. Yeah. But like if more sellers themselves could remember that the one who's really profiting from this deal or any deal is and should be the customer, it's just a really nice reframe of like, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. I was too caught up in my own commission check and the idea that this is the biggest deal I'd ever sold. I Well, I, I'm getting in my own headspace and my own head trash about how important this is going to be. Yeah, I forgot about the customer. Like, first rule of selling, don't forget about the customer. <laughs> like, it doesn't work well for you when you forget about them. So that client or customer should be profiting much more than you ever will. Otherwise, it's a bad deal and don't sell bad deals. I love the sentiment. And I said, it's one of the highlights for me, Jeff, because I just think it's one of those that a lot of people jump on that and say, well, no, we, we, uh, we always make sure we close off deals with an ROI calculator. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's not the point. By the way, it's also the wrong point, wrong stage to be using that in. If you aren't helping build the business case up front, you aren't supporting the buyer. Right. You're only ever selling to. Right. So if you really are helping a buyer buy, you will be helping them build the business case at the onset of the discussion. You're helping anchor around a problem that you are saying, here is what the causality of solving that problem is going to be on your business. And in some way, it's going to move it ahead so they can add more people. Maybe they're optimizing some profit center or they're changing the way they're engaging with the world. But 
if you can't be anchored around that kind of analysis and outcome, then I think you're only ever chasing the commission check and that isn't the right way to sell. And so, yes, help the, help the buyer buy, not just the seller sell. And let's make sure we ask, are we sure who's making the most money here? And what that number is? Do you know what that number is for that customer? Have we coached them to what that number could be? Do they believe in that number? Is it a true number? Not some flippant thing we punch through a calculator. Yeah, I think that is the science coupling them with the art at the right stage. Yeah, it's brilliant. Jeff, final, final word. You interact with thousands of folks around sales uh, you know, every single year, headed into uh, you know the start of this new year, all of the, the world that we're in, which is a reasonably tricky one for a lot of folks right now. If you were to give a final tip to say, you know, what, what would it be? What's, what's your final coaching advice for everybody? That voice in the back of your head, that feeling in your belly will never lead you wrong. When you feel like you know what the right thing to do is, the biggest mistake that you can make is talk yourself out of it. You're going to feel all the pressure in the world to talk yourself out of it. You won't be alone. <laughs> there are people who talk themselves out of it all the time. But as someone who fought those demons themselves and was faced with those situations in the field as a, a top performer, and as I have worked with dozens of other top performers in, in my consulting career, everybody at some point in time decides to trust themselves. And when you believe enough in your capabilities to trust those instincts, that is what blows the lid off your potential and turns you into a perpetual top performer. So fight that if you will, but know that your best performance is on the other side of that decision. I love it. Sage advice. Wonderful having you here, Jeff. I uh, can't thank you enough for coming on and uh, have yourself a brilliant 2023. We'd love to have you back here in the near future. And how do people get a hold of you? Any, any quick uh, advice there? Um, the, the easiest way, jeffbajoric.com. And since most people are listening to this in a podcast player, the Rethink the Way You Sell podcast is wherever you can find it. Um, every podcast player and even on YouTube, I do some visual stuff there too. So uh, you can find it there. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's the best way. Awesome. Jeff, thanks again. Uh, and appreciate all of our listeners tuning in today. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and do check out our call-in number and send in your questions to our Naya. We will be sure to answer them and feature them in an upcoming podcast episode as well. You can reach us at 323-540-4777. That's 323-540-4777. Thanks so much, Jeff. Everyone, have a wonderful week. <laughs>